Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The famous opening saga of the 133rd Psalm. And as we have gathered together this afternoon, as it shortly will be the shades of evening having gathered about us, how appreciative and thankful we can be for the blessing that's ours indeed, to gather together by the gracious goodness of the God of heaven and his great blessings toward us. As we open his word from time to time and let the words to be found therein ring in our, e in our ears and to make their way into our hearts, how wonderful it is to know that we are guided by a higher, higher power than man, to be guided by those matters which transcend human thought that go far beyond what human intelligence is able to set forth. In the 66 books found in the word of God, we have that divine guidance provided to us. And for some weeks now, we've been endeavoring to discuss the book of Colossians in the New Testament. We come tonight to the seventh installment in that series, found for our text in chapter 3, verse 20, which is embedded in the section of verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, which we shall set before ourselves tonight as the text that, to which we shall give attention. As we make ready for that, a few introductory thoughts may be in order, some of which will remind us of where we have come to in this study, others to encourage us to see where we shall in fact move in that study tonight. The theme for the book has solely been that of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that not only is he the centerpiece of the church, he should be the centerpiece of the life of the Christian. Those things that we do moment by moment and day by day should revolve around the teachings that he has set forth so that he is the completeness of that which you and I can be. Colossians 3 verse 10, 2 verse 9, as well as a host of other texts that we've noted throughout this study. But inasmuch as we've looked at those things, we might well consider that the uni being united with Jesus is a theme that in many ways has often been mentioned, at least indirectly. Notice the ways in which that has appeared. In Colossians 2, verses 12 and 13, those Colossians were admonished to be united with Christ by virtue of baptism. Notice that to be united with Him reminds us that the church is His body and must be greatly honored and esteemed, Colossians 1.18. And being united with Him means that we put off certain things. Notice that old man and all those various things listed in Colossians 3 verses 5 and following are to be put away. But on the other hand, to be united with Jesus means many other things should be added. As we mature and grow, these should be earnestly involved in being added to our life. Colossians chapter 3 again verses 12 and following. In fact, that's where our lesson ended last week. And that's in many ways where it should begin today. For in verses 18 of chapter 3 to verse 1 of chapter 4, we notice that adding things to our life means something else that we did not discuss last week. It impacts the way that we interact with others. It, in fact, has a great deal of influence upon the way we interact within the family and the way we interact at the workplace, the way we interact in the various associations of life. All are touched by the way in which we become new individuals by virtue of being united with Jesus. As Paul begins that discussion in verse 18 of chapter 3, we too will note with him tonight what the greatness of those changes can be. With that said, I'd invite your discussion or reading with me in verses 18 through 21 of Colossians 3 and listen to the manner in which Paul directly addresses the Colossians and admonishes them to let their uniting with Jesus impact directly their dealings in the family. 
Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Those verses, of course, are not lengthy, and yet such tremendous and timeless truths to be found in them. Let us begin to pay a bit more attention and lay a bit of foundation as well as a tremendous structure of greatness built upon the truth of the text that we've just read. Let's revisit verse 18 first in our study this evening. Paul begins this inspired directive by first turning attention to the wives, those wives in the church of Colossae, and to them he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. That verb submit that occurs not only here but in other places of the New Testament with regard to the wife or the woman of the house, that word simply means to put or to place in subjection, to be under the authority of, or in other words, to take a subordinate place to. As that word therein appears in this place, we directly see that there are those who have great difficulties or problems with the truth that is here stated. But might we notice before we particularly address that subject that the instance that is here given is a matter of divine edict. As the inspired apostle made these directions, it was not his personal opinion and it was not his personal preference. It was the divine edict of the none other than the God of heaven. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. And notice he concludes it by saying, as it is fit in the Lord. In other words, this is the plan and will of God. It is befitting of that which He has directed. It is in accordance to the will that He has set forth. The matter of submission on the part of the wife. This is also, of course, taught in other places of the New Testament. We might recall in 1 Corinthians 14.34, as well as in the text of Ephesians 5.22, where there the wording is almost verbatim to this one. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. Notice just small difference in wording, but the truth ever so clearly set forth again in that place. To note these matters certainly begs many questions. Certainly ever since the feminist movement, the Equal Rights Amendment, and the other things of the 70s and early part of the 1980s, there have been many who have in fact blasphemed the Word of God because of texts like this one. In fact, their charge has often been the Bible is thus outdated. It needs to be modernized and set forth in a way that is understanding of 21st century America. However, they overlook some interesting and rather powerful truths. You and I often have noted in our study of the Scriptures that we cannot set aside texts that may be particularly uncomfortable to some because quite often there are other passages that hinge directly on the same truths. Let's, in fact, observe that here. If we call into question all those passages that are, in fact, like this one in setting forth this truth, might we remember in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, the very text to which we mentioned earlier, that there Paul makes note that this is based upon the underlying fact of what occurred in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. If we turn back to that text in Genesis 3, 16, might we remember that there, after Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, God first addressed the serpent and placed a punishment upon him. He then addressed the woman 
And then finally he addressed Adam, the man. But as he addressed Eve, the woman, to, their, to her he especially made this observation in Genesis 3.16. On that occasion when he pointed out that great sorrow would accompany the birth of children. Greatly shall your sorrow be increased in terms of conception, the bearing of children. But notice as the verse closes, he made one other statement. Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. These affirmations of the New Testament, in fact, are from the matter of history from that time. These are not culturally limited statements. The text in 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 11 and continuing to verse 14, are in fact based on the same matter, and it is to that same Genesis text that Paul points the attention. For he says, from the beginning, the woman was deceived in the transgression, but the man wasn't. Now, all that being said, this matter about the wife being in subjection to the husband, though there are some today who perhaps are not so happy with that arrangement, we understand that in the family that God finds pleasing, it must be that way, for that is the will of heaven on that behalf. As we consider perhaps one final statement about that observation, the wife being in subjection to the husband, we of course should say that the husband shall have his direction given in just a moment. But before we reach that point, in terms of the family, it was God's will that the man take the leadership role in that position. And it shall be he that in judgment shall be held accountable for that point. He did not give that to the woman. Now, there are other duties and responsibilities he has laid upon her shoulders. And in the dutiful Christian way, she will take them and do that which the Lord God has commanded relative to them. But he gave the leadership role in the family to the man. And we as the husbands and fathers must take that leadership and that role or else we are shirking our responsibility. We are doing less than that which God demands that we do. However, in light of that point, might we notice the next verse and then make some more comments about both of these verses together. Looking at verse number 19, now the husband, it is his turn. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Might we notice again a direct imperative commandment. This is not stated in language that is a, a suggestion, nor is it stated in language that one may take or leave. Husbands, love your wives. In the degree of that love as it is herein stated, might we remember in the Ephesians text, this is a love described by the word agape, agapao, and there notice the language of Ephesians 5.25 is this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. This is no minor kind of love, is it? It is that prototypical New Testament Christian love that is compared to that love that Jesus had for his church that blessed bride that is his body. Indeed, in terms of the statements that I've made, the force of that statement and the force of that verb has to do with a deliberate choice. Agapao is a choice to love and to beseech the best will of that other one that's under consideration. Jesus did that for his church. As he looked down the stream of time and established that body, he set in place, set in motion those matters that would be in its best interest. And husbands, we must do the same with regard to our wives. To in fact seek her best will, that which is her eternal best interest, accomplishing that by virtue of our sincere love for her, 
that would bring about that which is truly in the best interest of her. Husbands, love your wives. The nature of that love, I've chosen to list a commandment or a statement or two in regard to it. Indeed, isn't that also an exceedingly high obligation that rests upon us men, us husbands? For as we appreciate the degree of selfless love that Christ had for his body, the church, might we appreciate that the love we should have for that wonderful woman that's our wife is described in similar language to that. Husbands, love your wives. At this point, might we also note something rather interestingly stated here as well. Notice that that love is again a deliberate choice. It certainly is the case that quite often infatuation tends to base love upon the prettiness of her and her face and the other features of her physique. But might we notice that that love must go far deeper than that. Young men, young bachelors, I would encourage you to listen carefully. When you come to that point in life that you begin to seriously contemplate taking that woman to be your wife. Choose not so much on the physical appearance. Look at her heart. Is she a woman whom you can diligently love for the remainder of your days? Is she one who will obey those statements such as submission as commanded by God? Is she one whose heart is tender and pure and who will be a fantastic Christian mother to your children? Is she a lady whom will help you go to heaven and whom also you can aid and assist in her journey to eternity? Those things are far more important than perhaps the look of her face in the, in the here and now. Time will change the way she looks. It won't change her heart. Notice as those statements are herein made, it is to be noted that husbands have an initial uh, and extended matter too. Verse 19, be not bitter against them. Isn't it true that one could take the matter of subjection too far? Notice that she is to submit to him, and if he is a tyrant and as an overlord and basically as a slave master chooses to conduct himself toward her that way, she can well become embittered. The Greek word means to become resentful. That kind of matter is something that we as husbands should keep in mind. And in fact, would it not be fair to say that that precious lady will not have any trouble submitting to that man who loves her as Christ loved the church. When that husband truly has her best interest at heart and so conducts himself and the family in a way to exalt and lift her up in the words of Proverbs 31, she will have no trouble submitting to him. She'll understand that that is in fact not only good for the here and now, it's in her best interest to be under the protective leadership of that one who loves her for all time and eternity. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. A wonderful interplay of dynamic capability within the family. But when a family is orchestrated that way, isn't it truly what Brother Watkins often describes as paradise on earth? It is a marvelous thing to behold. In fact, one of the latter statements on the screen challenges each of us to remind ourselves time and again about the nature of what the family is to be like. Husbands, do we let our wives know that we love them? Do we tell them more than once every now and then? Do, does she know that by the way that we react to the things we do, even without being so often told about those things? And by virtue of the wives, in terms of submission, does your husband appreciate your devoted affection toward him? 
These are questions that challenge each of us on a regular and often basis, don't they? But we might notice in regard to those two things that the Apostle Paul goes onward. Notice with me verse number 20. Having addressed not only the husband and the wife, now he turns his attention to the children. Children, verse number 20. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. I chose that latter statement in that verse as the title to the lesson, well-pleasing unto the Lord. The description of a family like this, and now as we consider the children, let's spend a few moments and notice the inspired instructions that are given to them. One of the first things that might be said, that church in Colossae, the wives were important, the husbands were important. May we not overlook the children. Here at Pippin, our children are important. We appreciate the role that they play in maturing and growing and what they can become in future days. That's one innocent lesson we see in a text like this one. May we not overlook our children. May we appreciate them for the grand treasure that they are. In Proverbs in Psalm 127, in fact, we read, especially in verse number 3, that children are in heritage of the Lord. Blessed is the man that hath his quiver full of them. With regard to children, let us revisit now verse 20. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Children are also given a direct commandment. It is in the imperative case in the Greek verbs. Notice this is a direct commandment. Obey your parents in all things. One of the first matters that we as parents come to appreciate, and we remember it in our own lives if our memory carries us back that far, as a child enters the world more often than not, that child doesn't have the proper appreciation for authority and doesn't have the necessary respect for it that's wholesome and good. That's one of the duties of the parent. Make certain to instill within that child a proper respect for authority in any sphere in which it occurs. Authority in the home, authority in the church, authority in the school, authority from a civil perspective. All of that authority has been provided by God himself for the blessing of humanity. And any time that authority is blasphemed or whenever it is ignored, it does nothing but lead to problems. Problems in the home, problems in the church, problems in society, problems at the school, you name it. Any time authority is improperly respected. It does nothing good. Thus, children must learn about the nature of authority. Notice they are told here to obey. Four letters, O-B-E-Y. That means to properly fall beneath the subjected commands of, to do that which is commanded, to follow through with what is, in essence, told. As one considers the nature of that commandment, it is something that goes hand in hand with that matter of authority, isn't it? Did we not read in Proverbs 29, 15 that a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame? When that child does not learn authority, when he or she grows to the point and proceeds to live his own life without any respect for that, he'll do nothing but bring shame and disgrace to the family name, and he'll do nothing but hurt the relationship between that child and all others with whom he or she may come in contact. Children, obey your parents. Isn't it interesting as one considers the thoroughness and the simplicity of that statement? It isn't a lengthy verse. 
It may be that in Sunday school at one time or another we've been called on to memorize that when we were younger. Children, obey your parents in all things. Might we notice that the sister text of that one in Ephesians 6 reads, of course, in a very familiar way, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. According to the Holy Spirit, then, what is right? To obey your parents. There may be times that you don't fully believe that what they say is the best course of action. There may be times you don't have full confidence that they know exactly what they're talking about. That doesn't matter. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's the end of it. Paul didn't say, if you want to. He didn't say, if you think it's right. He said, obey them. Now, obviously, if a parent commands you to do something illegal or to do something that's opposed to the Word of God, that's different, and that's not what Paul's talking about. As long as the directions are given in accordance to that which is the law of God, obey them, respect them, and honor them. The fifth of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament read like this, Honor thy father and thy mother. That word honor means to give great respect to. It means to look highly upon them and elevate them. Give them due honor. The greatness of that has often been called into question in our society, hasn't it? Sometimes you see on the news where children seem to not only not honor the parents, but seem almost to blaspheme them, treat them ugly. Notice that that falls under the condemnation of a verse like this one. But even when you and I choose to discuss or talk with them, react toward them in a way that is less than honorable, we also violate a commandment like this one. We must honor them. They brought us into this world. They put clothes on our back, food in our stomach. They pay our bills. They take care of us. They deserve our honor and our respect. When statements like that are made, we at one time will recognize, of course, if the normal train of time moves onward, they will pass from this life before we will. We will miss them then. The time will come we wish we could talk to them again. We wish we could ask Dad a question. We wish we could solace Mom one more time. But when they're gone, it'll be no more. Honor them cherish them, appreciate them. Those kind of statements we find in the heart of not only the Ephesian letter but the Colossian one as well. And those statements, of course, lead us to say at the end of that verse, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. This is something that God finds a good thing. May we appreciate in our lives the same as we seek then to obey our parents and to do that which is pleasing unto God in that respect. In Deuteronomy 5 or 16 in the Old Testament, we remember that reiteration of that fifth of the Ten Commandments, that statement about honor, and to provide to them the proper degree of estimation. That's a matter that was demanded in the Old Testament. On more than one occasion, might we remember that there was direct statements of the law of Moses as to what was to be done if a child did not properly respect and honor his or her parents. And often, might I mention, that was one of the capital punishments of the Old Testament. A child could be put to death for improperly respecting, for in fact cursing dad or mom. As we consider this text, might we note Paul isn't finished by any stretch. In verse number 21, attention is now turned to parents and especially fathers. Let us revisit that text and look at what is said to us in that regard. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Having looked, at having looked at husbands, and also at wives, and also at children, now 
the directive is toward parents, and again, particularly the father. Fathers, he says, provoke not your children. Might I mention that there is a bit of distinction between the King James rendering and the American Standard rendering. In the oldest of the Greek manuscripts, that prepositional phrase to anger is not present. And hence, the text merely reads, Fathers, provoke not your children, lest they be discouraged. Might we notice, what does the word provoke mean? That word simply means as follows. It means, if you will, to arouse, to exasperate. It means, in essence, to make resentful. We as fathers, perhaps especially, can so rule the house and conduct matters in such a way that the child or the children become exasperated, that they become aroused, they become resentful. And there are many ways in which we might, in fact, conduct ourselves that would make that happen. As you notice some of the statements I've made on the screen, we first of all might make note of the fact that we shouldn't purposefully strive to dishearten or discourage them. That person when young perhaps does not have the solidity in life formed yet, has not learned to be able to take life with its ups and its downs, has not learned to be able to think so clearly and logically through things, and by our actions we well may be able to discourage or dishearten them, perhaps overly so. For instance, we may act unfairly toward them. We may act in a prejudiced way toward them, much like Rebecca and Isaac did toward Jacob and Esau. We may conduct ourselves in a way that in many ways could well be said to be improper toward them. We should ever seek to be fair, to be unprejudiced, to be impartial toward them. We should seek, in fact, to be understanding of the fact that they are not as mature as we. And we certainly, however, should be, when disciplined, it should be done appropriately. And it should be done rightly. And it should be done in accordance to harmony in Scripture. When we discipline them in that way, might we notice that it should be done in a way that is not abuse? The Bible never endorses the abuse of a child, and it is a tragic thing to behold. However, proper discipline not only is enjoined upon us toward the children, it is commanded of us. In Proverbs 13, 24, we read texts like this one. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. The most unloving thing that we can do is to fail to discipline them when that's what's needed. And if that means a spanking or a whipping or a paddling, whatever the language to be properly said is, then that's what needs to be done. If it means to ground them, then that's what needs to be done. That's the, that is left to the discretion of the parent, but it is not to be ignored. There are those in our society who, reading various secular books, would tell us, I love my child too much to spank him nonsense. In fact, you don't love him if you don't spank him when he needs it. You don't love him or her if you fail to discipline them when that's what is required and needed. Oh, how we should be thankful for a dad and a mom who saw fit to discipline us when that's what was needed. For those of us that are parents, we know that it's not a pleasant moment to have to discipline them. And certainly they may think that it hurts them far more than we, but they will learn in time that it really isn't that way. Isn't it interesting to notice here that as the discipline is indirectly mentioned, how often did Solomon make statements about that? 
in Proverbs 18 as well as chapter 19. He helps us remember that do not spare because of his crying. Notice he says even when that child begins to cry, if he needs another spanking, let that be the case. In Proverbs 29 verses 16 and 17, we read the interesting nature of how that's the command of God to in fact discipline them while there's yet hope so that they will grow to understand the nature of authority and the respect they must have for it. These things help us see that to discipline them is not to discourage them necessarily, but rather proper discipline will make their self-esteem grow. One of the most ridiculous things that has been foisted upon many by the human character of writing is that when spanked, quite often we're told well, that harms their self-esteem. It in fact causes their inner person to be less than what is intimately valued. Again, might we say that is sheer nonsense. That does not harm. It may bring some esteem to the backside, admittedly, but not to the brain, not to the character of what ultimately that person is able to become. As Paul has addressed these matters through the first four verses of our reading, he has, of course, addressed the family. But beginning in verse number 22, he now takes us outside the family. What other realms and spheres of location are able to be discussed? Let us read verses 22 through verse 1 of the next chapter and then return and provide some comments on these verses as well. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Beginning in verse number 22, we notice that now the discussion throughout the entirety of that text we read involves servants and masters, slaves and masters. We may be of a disposition to think that with the ending of slavery in our country by virtue of what happened shortly after the Civil War, that texts like that are not so directly applicable today. We would be mistaken if that's our viewpoint. There are principles contained in that text that are as sorely needed and as, are as applicable today as ever. Notice that a slave is one who, of course, worked for another perhaps as a household servant, perhaps as one who worked toiling in the field, or any number of other ways. But might we notice that in verse 22, that servant was addressed. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. As we appreciate the thoroughness and directness, there's that word obey again. It is quite often the case that that's almost a dirty word in our modern time. Individuals don't want to obey. We want to control things, and we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. Paul said, servants, obey those masters in the flesh. You obey what they command you to do. And not only did he say obey, we understand it would be possible to do what they say even though behind their back you talk dirty of them, you talk meanly of them, you do the job at just as little as you can do it, just enough to scratch and scrape by. But that isn't what he said. 
he said, not with eye service as men pleasers. Don't do just enough so that they might say, all right, that's good enough for now. You do it as if you appreciate the singleness of heart in the fear of God. You do the best job that you can do with what they've commanded. And that speaks volumes about the nature of you and me as we work in the workplace. When we work there for a person who pays our check or who provides to us a check, we need not simply do enough to merely scratch by and in essence pilfer from our boss. To waste away the day playing on the internet and yet get a full day's pay for it, that's not the way the Lord commanded it. We do a day's work in exchange for a day's pay. We do not merely try to do as little as we can get by with. Servants, you obey your masters in all things according to the flesh. In fact, these same statements are found in a host of other passages. There's Ephesians chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapters 4 and 6, as well as an indirect hint in 1 Peter 2. All of them reminding us that as Christians we have an honorable master whom we serve. And perhaps the question should be asked, in our service to the great Son of God, do we just do the minimum amount we think we can get by with? Or is our heart on fire for the Lord, striving always to go above and beyond the call of duty in our service to Him? We're reminded in Luke 17, 7, that even when we've done that which was commanded of us, we are still unprofitable servants. Oh, how we should then strive to do all that we can in service to the Christ, for indeed hadn't He done everything for us. He made it possible for us to be with Him forever in heaven. He made it possible for us to be members of the church. He gave us a plan of salvation. Servants, obey your masters in all things. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in verse 22, in singleness of heart, fearing God. Verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily. Do it with a degree of consideration that the one whom you're serving is not directly and foremost that master. It's your Father in heaven. In what we do for others, even our employers, we should remember we are ambassadors for Christ and should strive to do always our best. For notice verse 23 closes by saying, As to the Lord and not unto men. When we thus do our best on the job, we are setting a good example for Jesus. When we do our best in light of our employer-employee relationship, we are serving as ambassadors that others will see. It is a sad thing, then, when our nation in its surveys has often noted that far too much of the day is, in fact, wasted, not doing what is in the best efforts of the employer or for the business, but it's wasted playing in the break room, taking two and a half hours for lunch, and yet claiming only one, when we do that, we are not responding properly to what has been commanded of us. Because notice in verse number 24, we should know that of the Lord we shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for we serve the Lord Christ. And isn't it true that he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong that he hath done? Those servants were to understand that when you cheat your master and don't do that which he's commanded, God's watching. He knows what you've done and he knows what you've claimed. And that's still true of us, isn't it? There will come a day that we'll stand before one who knows every second of every minute of every hour of every day of our life. He'll know whether we were just in our recompense toward the job that we had, or we were honest in terms of receiving the pay that was just and deserving. 
In fact, even in regard to preaching, the same principle is set forth. He that lives of the gospel, or those that preach the gospel, should live of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9 reminds us. And so when a person perhaps who chooses to stand in a pulpit and yet does not preach that gospel, does not in fact divulge the truth of the word, he should be called in question. Perhaps he deserves no paycheck that week. Perhaps he has not earned it by virtue of the chore given unto him and the obligation that's his. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. Might we notice then as chapter number 3 closes, it was perhaps divided in a rather inconvenient fashion. For chapter 4, verse 1, directly continues this train of thought and addressed to the masters. These latter few verses have been in direction to the servants. Let us notice that the masters also are addressed. Let's consider rather interestingly this verse as well. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. We noticed earlier that children were addressed, parents were addressed, wives and husbands as well. Now, in addition to addressing servants, he also addressed masters. They have duties and they have obligations. He says in verse 1, Give unto your servants that which is just and equal. Notice that those words mean, in essence, equitably. Masters, you treat those servants in an equal, just, and proper fashion. You do not treat them in a way that is, to use the words of verse 1, unequal and unjust. You be consistent in your dispensing of the commandments and the orders, your dispensing of the treatment of them. Just as surely as that text does have principal applications today, we might appreciate that perhaps directly to employers, if any of us happen to be those for whom others work beneath us, may we ever remember that we have obligations to them. We should treat them equitably, equally, and justly. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be offices, for there may well be hierarchies. There may be a foreman beneath the manager and then a particular subforeman beneath him. But in our description of our treatment of them, it should be done in a way that's just and equal, proper and right. There should be no mistreatment in that kind of way. In Matthew 7, verse 12, our Savior taught that text often known as the golden rule, in which he said, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. Do we as employers treat those that work beneath us that way? Those who have the opportunity to work beneath us, do they see in us a master who is understanding of the principles of heaven in this matter? If not, we should seriously rethink the obligation given to us, the responsibility that rests upon our shoulders. And as we look toward that time when others may work beneath us, may we treat them justly, properly, equitably, rightly, and equally, all the while understanding that yet again there's a God in heaven watching us. He knows when we do properly and when we don't. And there shall come a day that we'll answer for the improper ones if we haven't repented properly of them. As verse number 1 closes, there's one more time that Paul says they know something. Knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. You and I as Christians, in essence, are slaves. Paul called himself a bondservant, a slave. And you and I are the same. 
not to a human master, but to Jesus. Are you and I good slaves to him? Do we obey that which he has commanded? Do we fall in line beneath the character of his mastership? He is the best master that there ever can be. He loves us. He, in fact, loves us so much that he gave his own life for us. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. This very afternoon, in contemplation of what these texts have meant to us personally, they are challenges without a doubt. Challenges for us as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as employers and employees, to live up to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 4.1, and to do so understanding that we have a master in heaven. Perhaps some concluding thoughts would be in order. These concluding thoughts might well be summarized in language like this. That that new man that we learned about last week, that one who has put off certain things and who has put on others, can well be described in words like this. That new man will be a loving husband. If you happen to be a lady, then you'll be a submissive wife. That new person will be an obedient child. That person will be an obedient employee. That person will also be an equal and just employer. All the while, can we not see that that new man will be a father that is not provoking of his children? A mother who does not seek to make them resentful? These matters help each of us see that in Jesus we are called indeed to have families, to be in relationships that are guided and guarded by the principles of the new man. This evening, are you a new person in Jesus? First, Second Corinthians 5.17 reminds us that the old things are passed away. All things have become new. Has your life been remade and, re and made new in Him? If you need to become a Christian this evening, all things are prepared and ready. He asks, as we've noted the past two Sunday mornings, in fact demands that you hear the Word, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His glorious name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized. Upon so doing, he'll add you to the church. You'll be able to wear the name Christian with pride and with power. If you have become a Christian but haven't been true and faithful to that calling, come back to your first love. God so loves you, he's willing to accept you back with open arms. Luke 15, beginning in verse 13. If we could aid you tonight by praying on your behalf or by assisting your baptism, let that be made known even now. While together we stand and while we sing.